Acts 21 is where we are going to be this morning as we continue through our study in the series of the book of Acts. Acts 21, actually verses 17 through 36 is where we're going to be. I don't know if you've ever suffered uh, from threat of violence uh, for the sake of the gospel, or maybe you suffered actual violence, physical violence for the sake of the gospel. The closest that I came to something like this was in the summer of 2001. I went with our church on a mission trip to Marseille, France. If you don't know your French geography very well, that's okay. Marseille is a very southern port city uh, in France. And the reason that we were in Marseille was to get gospel materials into, uh, into closed countries. And you may be wondering, how did we do that in France? Well, what would happen is, is there are many North Africans that live uh, in France and throughout Europe. And what they would do is they would come to Marseille uh, to get on these really big boats in order to go home. They'd cross the Mediterranean Sea, vacation in the summer, and they would go home. They would go to closed countries like Tunisia and Algeria, where it's hard to get the gospel into those countries. And so what we would do is, or what families would do, North African families would do, is they would come to Marseille, they would come uh, to the port, and they could get on these boats in one of two ways. One is they could get on what is called the pedestrian gate, or the pedestrian port, which means they just walk right on to the boat. Or the other option was, was the car gate, or the carport. And what you could do is you would literally drive your car onto the boat. And what we would do is we would go to one of these ports or one of these gates every day and hand out gospel packets to people in order to get the gospel materials into not only into their hands, but also into those closed countries as well. Those packets usually became, uh, I'm sorry, those packets usually contained things like a copy of the Jesus movie on DVD uh, and a Bible, uh, some books and other gospel materials. And so one day, uh, one, actually one morning, we were at the car gate. We were there really, really early. I think we were there, like, I think it was like 4 a.m. It was super early. It was dark out. And the reason we got there so early is the cars would line up really early in the morning because they wanted to be the first ones on the boat. Because the way it worked is the first ones on the boat were also the first ones off the boat. And so you wanted to get there early. So we got there at 4 in the morning, and there was already a long line of cars already lined up to get on the first boat there of the day. And so what we would do is we would walk around, and we would go from car to car, and we actually learned a couple of different phrases in, in French. And what we would basically do is we would ask them if they wanted a free gift, if there's something that they would want or not. And then we would always have some of the, the long-term missionaries would always go with us and help us on this endeavor as well. Well, one of the cars that we came to that morning was one that I will, I will just never forget. This gentleman, um, when we went to him to give him the gospel materials, we could tell right away he was super irate with us. As a matter of fact, he actually got out of the car which did, never happened except for this moment. He got out of the car, and we got into, or not we, because I didn't understand the thing that he was saying, but the missionary that was with us got into this very intense conversation with him. It was clear he was, he was super irritated and agitated with us. This gentleman was actually raising his voice and yelling and waving his hands around at us. 
Uh, our missionary, though, he remained, he was super calm the whole time in having this conversation with this man. But it was clear that this North African, and he, was, he was clearly upset, and he wouldn't back down, and he just kept arguing. Now, I didn't understand what they were saying. I was praying intently the whole time. But we're just, the rest of us, we were just kind of just passive observers watching all this happen. But what happened is, is we started to attract some attention to us. Soon, uh, several North African men gathered around us, observing this commotion that was taking place, and were wondering what was going on. And then they started asking us questions in French. And that's when I started really getting nervous, because some of them were, were in an intense, trying to have an intense conversation with us. And we were like, you know, we don't know what you're saying. We don't understand. I mean, it was a very helpless feeling. I mean, there were no police around anywhere. And this man, he just kept getting more and more agitated. I don't know if the gathered crowd is kind of fueling him in this. Um, and I'm starting to wonder, oh my goodness, is, is a fight going to break out? Like, are we going to get beat up? Like, is violence coming our way? I mean, I'm starting to formulate a plan. Like, what do we do? Like, I don't know anything here. I don't know where to go. I wouldn't know who to ask for help. And I don't know if anyone even knows English that would understand our, our need uh, for help. This whole ordeal seemed like an eternity. It was probably the longest 20 minutes of my life. But thankfully... Uh, some of the North African men who had gathered around us were able to calm this agitated man down. And the crowd basically dispersed. Everybody got back into the vehicles, and I breathed a huge sigh of relief. Um, after a few moments, uh, we all collectively, the group that was there, uh, we all kind of uh, you know, regained our composure and went back to the task of handing out these gospel packets. And I got to tell you, that was probably one of the scariest moments of my life. But that's nothing, absolutely nothing compared to what we're going to see Paul go through this morning in our passage. Because he's going to be involved in something much more, much greater than just an intense argument. He is literally going to be in a fight for his life. Real persecution, once again, is coming Paul's way in our passage this morning. But what we're also going to see this morning is how or, or why this persecution came to Paul. There were events that led up to this moment in Paul's life that he intentionally chose that put himself in this position of persecution to begin with. Paul is going to pay a high price for the gospel in more than one ways this morning, as we will see. So if you want to look with me, I'm going to read here Acts 21, verses 17 through 36. Uh, the passage will be on the screen here, or you can follow along in, in your Bible. But if you could stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. When we had come to Jerusalem... The brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. 
And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may, uh, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days for purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, even he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Tropinus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. As he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came into the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence in the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So remember what we have seen leading up to this point here in Acts 21. Paul has been wanting for a long time to get back to Jerusalem. And people have been warning him and pleading with him all along that journey to not go, to not go to Jerusalem because persecution and arrest were awaiting him in Jerusalem. But Paul kept going anyway, right? And the reason that Paul keeps going is because of his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is to get to Rome. He wants to go to Rome and preach the gospel there. And here in this passage in Acts 21 this morning is the beginning of this long and hard and yet unusual road that Paul takes in order to get himself to Rome. In verse 17, we see that Paul finally arrives in Jerusalem. It says that Paul is met gladly by, by the believers there at the church in Jerusalem. 
there is much joy in the church to see Paul once again. And that's important for us to remember that the church really does love Paul because we need to keep that in mind of the things that are going to come up in this passage. In verse 18, it tells us that the very next day that Paul goes into this meeting, he meets with James, who is the half-brother of Jesus and is also the leader of the church in Jerusalem, along with all the other elders of the church. So this is a significant meeting that is taking place with Paul and the church. The first thing Paul does, he tells us in verse 19, is that he tells them about all the great things that God has done and all the places that he has traveled. Everywhere that they go, there are Gentiles trusting in the good news of Jesus for salvation. In verse 20, we see that the Jewish believers, that the elders in the church, hear the testimony of Paul about the salvation of the Gentiles, and they glorify God. These Jews are praising God of the great work that he is doing in saving these Gentiles. And then James and the elders take time to tell Paul about the great things that God has done to bring about the salvation of the Jews right there in Jerusalem. It says many thousands are believing in Jesus there in Jerusalem. I mean, this is awesome to see. This is Acts 1.8 literally being fulfilled. They are being witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And as a result, many Jews are trusting in Jesus for salvation. And Gentiles all over the region are also trusting in Jesus as well. We're seeing that God is doing a great work of salvation all over the place. And there is much rejoicing in the church for God's gracious provision of his salvation. But not everything has been smooth sailing for the church. Because a problem has been revealed to Paul by the church in Jerusalem. Let's look again in verses 20 and 21 to see that problem. It says, when they heard it, they glorified God and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands... There are among the Jews of whom have believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. So here's what's happening. There are many Jews in Jerusalem who are trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone for salvation. But because they are Jews, they continue to be zealous for the law of Moses, they continue to keep the Jewish customs, and they continue the act of circumcision. The major difference is, is they don't do these works for salvation anymore, because they're trusting in Jesus, but instead they're just doing them more out of tradition, that the Jews just still want to hold to the traditions that they have been brought up doing. And the problem is, is word has gotten back to the church in Jerusalem that Paul is telling the Jewish believers in every place that he's been going on his missionary journeys that they don't need to keep the law of Moses anymore, that they don't need to practice circumcision, and that they don't need to keep any of the Jewish customs. And the reality is, is that's just not true. 
Paul does not teach those things. This is a rumor that has been started about Paul. Paul's words have been twisted. And as a result, this false report has come to the church in Jerusalem. Now, there's some really important things that we need to make clear here this morning. Both Paul and James are going to completely agree that salvation comes through the completed work of Jesus Christ in the cross and the resurrection that is in Jesus and Jesus alone that saves and nothing else. Paul and James are both going to wholeheartedly agree that keeping the law and circumcision and custom, those Jewish customs or any other work does not save a person. They will be very clear about this. But here is something else that Paul and James will also both agree on. They will both agree that we must still obey the commands of God that we find in the Scriptures. When you read the epistles of Paul, you will find all sorts of commands that the believers are supposed to keep. Paul, but Paul is very clear on the order of things. Salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone and not as a result of works. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But what comes after salvation is obedience to Jesus. That's what Ephesians 2.10 says. For we are his workmanship, created for good works in Christ that God ordained beforehand. Now, obedience is always what naturally flows out of the life of a believer after salvation. And yet Paul also communicates there that those works that we have are works that God prepared for us beforehand. God is always doing the work in our salvation. So Paul never says, disregard the law. He just says, hey guys, the law isn't what saves you. Paul never says that the Jewish people should no longer be circumcised. As a matter of fact, we've already seen in Acts 16 and verse 3 that Paul has Timothy circumcised. But what Paul did say, and he said over and over again to the Jewish people, is that circumcision is not required, is not a work that obtains your salvation. And that when you add anything to Jesus for salvation, this is when Paul would get upset. Paul would say this is a major problem when we add something like circumcision to Jesus for salvation. See, Paul did not say that the Jewish people should no longer keep the Jewish customs. We also saw in Acts chapter 18 and in verse 18 that Paul himself was under a vow, which means Paul was under a Nazarite vow, which is an Old Testament Jewish custom. Again, Paul would say customs are okay as long as you don't require them for salvation. It is only the work of Jesus that saves and not any of the Jewish customs. Problem has, uh, I'm sorry, Paul has no problem with the law of Moses or circumcision or Jewish customs as long as they are not requirements of salvation. I mean, just listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20. He said this, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So Paul is not teaching to disregard these things. What he was teaching was that these things were not necessary for salvation. And this is where the confusion came in for the church in Jerusalem. 
These Jewish believers were upset with the misinformation that they had received about Paul's teachings, which just weren't true. So what is to be done? That is the question that verse 22 is asking. Because the Jewish believers at the church in Jerusalem are upset with Paul, and they know that Paul has arrived, that Paul is now in town. So this is a key question. What they're basically asking is how can there be unity? How can there be reconciliation between Paul and the Jewish believers at the church in Jerusalem? How can things be made right? Now remember, the church is glad to see Paul. They believe in Paul. They know what Paul is teaching, and they know that, that Paul is still someone that is trustworthy with teaching these things. But they also see, in verse 22, it says that all the believers are concerned about keeping the unity of the church. And what we're going to see is Paul is concerned about keeping that unity as well. Because the solution that they come up with is in verses 23 and 24. The solution is, hey, we got these four Jewish believers over here. They are currently taking a Nazarite vow. And that vow is coming to an end. A Nazarite vow was a special dedication to the Lord. It would usually last 30 days, but could go longer if so desired. And part of this uh, vow would include things like not cutting your hair or not drinking any wine. So the church encourages Paul to go to the temple with these four men and pay for their vow to come to an end, which means they want Paul, they want Paul to pay for the sacrifices that are required to end a Nazarite vow. And by Paul doing this, what Paul is going to show the church in Jerusalem is say, hey, look, I support these guys. I support the customs that they are following. The church also wants Paul to purify himself as a way to show that he still supports the Jewish customs. Remember, Paul has been gone for a long time. He has been gone for years. And he's been around a bunch of Gentile people. And when one has been gone from Jerusalem and from the temple for a very long time, it was the Jewish custom to come and purify yourself before you return to the temple. So they're asking Paul to do this as well, to show that he still supports the Jewish customs. And according to verse 26, what we see is that Paul complies with the wishes of the church, and he does exactly what they ask him to do which I find, to be totally honest with you, amazing. That Paul, he's done nothing wrong, right? He didn't say anything wrong. He didn't do any false teaching. His words just got twisted, and these rumors just started. And Paul doesn't even seem to put up an argument with the church or debate with the church. He just seems to be ready to comply with their wishes and go along with them. Paul doesn't seem to defend himself. I mean, he has every right to do this, doesn't he? He has every right to try to justify himself and vindicate himself. He's innocent of all this. I mean, if I were Paul, I'd be like, hey guys, listen, let's just gather the church together and I'll preach for a week and I'll set the record straight and I'll tell you everything that I do believe and I'll reassure the church what I believe. But that's not what... Paul does. And that's hard for me to think through because I know that's what I would want to do. I would just want to preach those messages. 
Because I hate being falsely accused of things. And when I do, I want to go about, like, I want to clear my name. I want to make things right. Let me, let, me just, let me just state it for everybody to hear. But that's not what Paul does. Paul actually puts himself second and does what is asked of him. And I believe that Paul does this because, one, he cares so deeply about the unity of the church. And then two, I also believe that he does this, but he cares greatly for his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And he cares for these things more than his sense of self-vindication. I mean, Paul loves his fellow Jewish countrymen. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that because we think of Paul as this missionary to the Gentiles, right? That that was always where his focus was. But listen to Paul's heart and his love for his Jewish countrymen. This is what Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 says. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears, wit bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And verse 3 tells us why. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is almost shocking to read. But this is how deeply Paul felt about the salvation of his fellow Jewish countrymen. He's saying, you know what? I would rather I be the one that was lost in order that they would be saved. So if this is how much he cares about the Jewish people who don't believe, imagine how much Paul must feel about the unity of the Jewish church there in Jerusalem. And Paul cares so deeply for his fellow Jewish believers here in Acts 21 that not only is he willing to go along with their plans, but Paul is going to do so at great cost for himself. Because Paul knows very clearly that there is another group of Jewish people at the temple who are even more upset with him. As a matter of fact, they downright hate him. These are the Jewish people who have rejected the message of Jesus and the salvation that he brings. So, in Paul's attempt to gain the unity with the group of Jewish believers who trust in Jesus, Paul is greatly risking his life and well-being with this other group of unbelieving Jewish people. I am sure that Paul realizes this risk, and he goes on ahead with it anyway. I am sure that Abagus's prophecy that we saw last week, remember where we read that he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. This has to be running through Paul's head every time he goes in the temple. It says for seven days, Paul was going into the temple for this purification acts that he was doing. And then finally on the seventh day, we see this prophecy come true in our second section here this morning, verses 27 through 36. 
But what I want you to do is I just want you to try just to get a mental picture of this scene as it unfolds here and feel the gravity of the weight of the situation that, is, that Paul is involved in. Paul is seen at the temple following the Jewish customs. And then he is seen by the non-believing Jews. And these Jews at the temple get all stirred up. It says in verse 27 that they lay hands on Paul. In verse 28, we see the intensity of the people's hatred and urgency as they see Paul because they begin crying out for help. Help us! Look, that rabble-rouser Paul is here. And two false accusations come against Paul. One, Paul is teaching against the law and the temple, which is not true because we know he's just teaching about Jesus who came to fulfill the law and is the greater temple. And the second thing that they're accusing Paul of is that Paul is bringing Gentiles into the temple, which verse 29 also tells us is not true either. Paul is seen with Greeks. It says he's seen with Gentiles throughout the city, but he's never brought them into the temple, which goes against the Jewish customs. Verse 30 and 31, we see how chaotic this situation is becoming, right? It says the chaos has moved beyond the temple. That actually says that the whole city is stirred up because of Paul. People are running all over the place. A mob is beginning to form. They grab Paul and physically drag him out of the temple because they are seeking to kill him. Paul's very life is at stake in this moment. The city is causing such a commotion because of Paul. It catches the attention of the tribune, which is literally the Roman commander. He's the highest ranking officer in the city. And he sees that he needs to take action. And we see his urgency too. As he takes soldiers and centurions, he's literally grabbing an army. And they rush down to this disturbance, it says. They see that Paul is getting beat up by the Jews. The beating of Paul only stops because the crowd sees the, the soldiers coming their way. The Roman commander, he takes Paul away from this violent crowd, has him arrested and bound in two chains. Agabus' prophecy has come true. Chaos is reigning in the city. The Roman commander can't even make heads or tails what is going on. Verse 34 talks of confusion and the uproar that is taking place in the city all because of Paul. So the Roman commander decides the best thing that he can do for Paul's safety is to put him in the barracks, is to put him in jail until he can figure out what is going on. You know things are going bad for you when jail is the safest place for you to be. And this is where Paul is. The scene is so violent that it's telling us that the Roman soldiers have to literally carry Paul to keep him safe from the dangerous crowd that is around them shooting, uh, that are crying out, get rid of him. What a chaotic scene this is, right? People running back and forth, crying out, falsely accusing Paul, attacking him and beating him up. Paul's life is literally hanging in the balance. They don't want to just silence Paul. They want to kill him. The Roman soldiers of all people are the only ones trying to protect Paul, which is not saying a whole lot. They have arrested him, put him in chains, 
place them in the barracks. And all of this chaos happens because Paul wanted to bring about a unity with his fellow Jewish believers. That was the catalyst that caused all of this to happen to Paul. That's a high cost to pay for the unity of the church. And yet Paul is willing to pay that price because he saw the rich value of the unity of the church and he said, this is worth it. This is worth it. The risk is worth it. But not only that, this chaotic scene happened because this is the road that God has planned for Paul to take to get to Rome. These events, they don't happen by accident. This is not some bad luck for Paul or just chance that these things happen. This is the road that God had planned. This is the road that God ordained for Paul to take to get to Rome to preach the gospel. It was a difficult road. It's a road marked with suffering. We're going to see more of that as we go throughout the end of the book of Acts. And yet this is the road that God had planned for Paul. It's humbling, isn't it, and convicting to read about these events in the life of Paul, that he suffers hard things for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. This is how much Paul cares for Jesus and the good news of salvation that he brings, that Paul is willing to rock the road of suffering because Paul sees the gospel message of Jesus is worth it. And Paul suffers hard things for the unity of the church. This is how much Paul cares for the believers, for his brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, that he's willing to risk his life and well-being. I mean, this was humbling and convicting for me personally to think about this passage because I know what is in my heart. There is selfishness that is within me that is more concerned about protecting my own reputation or being right or being vindicated that can be more important for me than unity with others. Yet none of that seemed to matter to Paul, right? He wanted unity with the church more than anything else, more than his sense of being right, more than his convenience, or more than his comfort. I mean, Paul is actively living out the words that he taught in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you want to know what Philippians 2, 3, and 4 looks like practically, it's our passage here in Acts 21. Paul lived out those words. Paul looked beyond his own interests to the interest of his fellow Jewish believers in order to bring about a unity with him. So I think one application question this morning is this. Is there, some, is there someone in the church body that you are not in unity with this morning? Do you need to put yourself second? And go make things right with that person. Do you need to do the hard work of go to that person because you love the church so much that you want to make things right? 
That's a hard question. But I think it's a question that this passage is begging us to ask. But not only is there selfishness in me, there's also fearlessness in me. I, I am someone uh, that doesn't like to experience suffering. There's, fearless, there's fearfulness in me that can keep me from wanting to be bold and speaking for Jesus. I mean, I don't have a reason to fear for my life like Paul does, right? So what do I fear? I fear rejection. I fear disapproval. I fear a bad reputation. I fear the ridicule of man. And yet, none of that seemed to matter to Paul. Paul wanted to spend his life for the sake of the spread of the gospel. Listen to Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, because these words are not just lip service for Paul. He truly lived these things out when he said, that I may know him, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering and becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So I think another really good application question for us to consider this morning is, is there a place where I need to be bold for the name of Jesus? Is there a place where I need to stand for the truths of the gospel and proclaim Jesus joyfully? I read Acts chapter 21 verses 17 through 36 this week and I see a lot of things that are lacking in my heart. And maybe you see them lacking in your heart as well. So what do we do? What, what should be done? Because here's the thing. I believe that we need to do more than just feel bad or feel guilty, right? This passage is meant to do more than that in our hearts this morning. This passage, yes, I believe it is meant to make us uncomfortable. But I think it's meant to do more than that. I think it's meant to push us. I believe it's meant to push us to want to change, to look less like us. I don't like the way my heart looks. And yet, I want Jesus to come in and work in my heart where there would be less of me and more of him in my life. I think these things are also meant to make us dependent. Yes, we are insufficient for these things, but our God is totally sufficient to fulfill these things in us. I think these things are meant to drive us to God and ask Him to help us to do hard things, hard things that don't come naturally to us, hard things that maybe we're not enthusiastic about doing and saying, God, will you work these things in me? So I would encourage you to ask God to work in, your, in our selfish and fearful hearts. This is what I've been asking God this week. Praying for hard things, right? Praying to God that we would be willing to be second. Praying that we would do the hard things to bring about a unity. Pray that we would be bold for the cause of Christ. Praying that we would be willing to walk a hard road of suffering. And I also believe that we should be asking God to help us treasure him more. I believe this. I believe our ability to suffer 
will only go as far as our ability to treasure Jesus. Let me say that again. I believe our ability to suffer will only go as far as our ability to treasure Jesus. The more Jesus that we treasure, the more that we'll be willing to suffer for him. And on the flip side, the less that we treasure Jesus, the less likely we are to suffer for him. Paul saw the treasure of resurrection that we saw in Philippians 3. He said, this is what I want to obtain more than anything. Resurrection of Jesus, where I would get to be with him again. And he saw that the suffering that he took on was worth it. Because he saw the treasure of Christ. And he said, I will walk that hard road of suffering. So let's ask God to help. Let's ask God to help us be bold. Let's ask God to help us love the church more. We want to see the church as something more than we just do here on Sunday mornings. We want to see the church as our community and our camaraderie and our family. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's treat them as precious family members. And let's come to the word of God and let's read passages like these and be spiritually pushed. Pushed beyond our comfort zone and our abilities. And pushed towards the Lord and his abilities and his security that we find in him. Yes, the price of the gospel may be hard. But Jesus is always worth it. Let's pray. Father God, I do ask that you would help us treasure you more and love you more. Because when we love you more and treasure you more, we will love others more. We will have the ability to love others more freely because we are filled up with the love of you. And when we love you and treasure you, what will happen will spill out of us a love and a treasure and care and concern for others. So I pray that you would help us do that. I pray that you would help us treasure you more so that we would be willing to walk hard roads of suffering because we know that Jesus is worth it. And that we would treasure you and love you more so that we would be willing to be bold for you joyfully and lovingly because you are the greatest thing that we own. So I ask that you would be working these things in us this morning. Pray these things in your name. Amen.